Good to be back here in Boston. I say that because I believe, I'm trying to remember my schedule, but I believe I was in New York last Sunday for the last Sunday of Vision and our commissioning service. So that's where I was, and then I was in California. Um, there we go. Uh, I was in California for a conference, a collegiate uh, church planting conference. So is that, are we okay here? Oh, I got it. Yeah, so uh, good to be back, and um, want to just say hi to everyone here. Um, how's your summer going? Yeah, people, it's hard to tell through your mask, but through your eyes, it seemed like, yeah, okay. Um, I want to do a shout out for those uh, people watching online, and uh, when I was in the Bay Area, I, I realized there's a group of students um, uh, watching from UC Merced, so hi to you guys. And then also UC Santa Cruz, go banana, banana slugs. Go banana slugs. Okay, all right. Is it go slugs or go banana slugs? Josh and Jackie, uh, just, just go slugs. Okay, all right. So, you know, I don't know who's actually all the people watching out there, so just send me an email, mannykim at gmail.com. <laughs> Say, we're watching, our school's watching, please give a shout out to us. So, and then I will. So, all right. Well, uh, today... Uh, we're going to pivot from 1 Peter, and now we're going to go back to Genesis. And I know that it's been a long time since we've covered that. We started in the fall, uh, and then we actually, I was looking back on my notes, and we actually left off at Genesis 13. So today we're going to be covering mainly Genesis 15 with reference to the previous chapter. So you should have a handout, and for those of you watching online, um, just uh, maybe you could read... Um, with your Bibles or uh, just uh, whatever device you have with the Bible text, Genesis 15, and uh, let's read uh, all the way through, um, maybe up to verse 18, 1 through 18, so would like you to do that, uh, maybe just taking turns with the person next to you, so let's do that before we get started. All right, so um, let me, uh, so the second half of Genesis is a story, uh, it's actually a series of narratives uh, covering characters in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So today we're going to continue in the life of Abraham. And uh, as you read, uh, picking up at verse 1, we read, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And so uh, just to provide context, because it's to jog our memory, what is these things that this followed? And the events that happened in the preceding chapter was we have a war between two kings uh, or two groups, one group, it's five on four, five kings and then four kings. And spoiler alert, the four kings wins. Um, and then it, the the two kings that are included in the, in the five kings are the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that nations, or at least recorded, that nations are at war against each other. And if you remember in Genesis 4, we have Cain killing his brother Abel, the first murder in the, uh, in the Bible. And now we have tribes and nations killing each other, uh, which is really the sad legacy of mankind once God is kicked out of the picture. So, Abraham's nephew, Lot, if you remember, decided to separate ways with his uncle, and then now he 
moves into Sodom, we find himself living in Sodom, and we, we read, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his, position, and his possessions and went their way. So Lot is living there. Now, how did Lot end up in Sodom? Well, remember in, back in Genesis 13, uh, he chose the greener pastures um, near Sodom, and he decided, wow, that's a nice place. I'm going to be in the plains. Well, then soon after we read in verse 12 that he decided to camp near Sodom, uh, pitched his tent there, and then now we read in verse 12 of chapter 14 that he's actually living there. So I just want to make the observation here that these seemingly small, even harmless choices that don't seem that significant at that time but only later do you see the full ramifications and the consequence of your decisions. And at the risk of oversimplifying here or overgeneralizing, I think the story of one's life is, can be defined by one or two critical choices. And I'm not talking about just any old choices like the choice to eat Chick-fil-A versus In-N-Out or for those Texans out there, In-N-Out versus Whataburger or anything else, like it's not that kind of a choice. We're talking about choices here that have to do with your relational world. And so you've heard it said about the life's big questions. Um, what is my purpose? Uh, the question of my destiny, where did I come from? The question of origin, who am I? The question of identity, and where am I, where am I headed? Well, I think uh, one question that tends to get overlooked in the, in the big questions is, who will I identify with? And I think this question is just as important. If not, it takes on greater significance as life goes on. Remember in high school, that was a huge question. Who will I identify with? Was that a big drama for you guys? No? Like, will I identify with the cool people? Or are you, maybe you were one of the cool people. Every, other people were identifying with you. The aspirational types, you know, the athletes. Um, and probably depending on who you chose to identify with, it was cause of great concern and worry for your parents or not. Depends on who you decide to align yourself with. And I would argue that that question that of who I will align myself with or identify myself with in high school takes on greater significance now that you're in college and then once you graduate because the question of, will you join this tribe, my coworkers who decide to go out for happy hour uh, and for some drinks? Well, like, will I align myself with that group? Or will I align myself with those sports junkies who play fantasy football and eat at sports bars, chicken wings and fries and all that kind of stuff? It's probably where I would have ended up if it weren't for the gospel. You know, it's that question, like, who will I identify with, and how you answer that will go a long way in determining the outcome of your life. Now, Lot didn't think through this question, who will I identify with? Because if he had, I think he would have stuck with Abraham. But instead, he gets very practical. Where do I want to live? Well, that looks great over there. There's some nice green pastures. I think they will be good for my flocks. I will move there. And Sodom seems to be a cool place. It has the hipster cafes, you know, the savory donut shops and places to eat, the ramen bars. And so Sodom is the best place to hang out, maybe even raise a family. But he didn't ask who will my tribe be, my reference group, that is the best for me and my kids? 
He didn't actually think that through. And because he didn't think that through, consider what happens to him. Remember, Abraham, his uncle, and Lot started in the same place. And here's a small map. You can't really see it very clearly, but he started in Ur, uh, and that's their hometown. And when we and we read in verse 11 of chapter 13 that they separated from each other because Lot's decision to separate from his uncle. What were the consequences of that decision? Well, one of the consequences, well, we see that play out in the rest of Genesis. Because later on in life, Lot is found offering up his two daughters to strangers for immoral acts. He then loses his wife as Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed. And then towards the end, he commits incest with his own daughters. So, again, I just want to make this Maybe, maybe it's an obvious point, but over time, paths grow increasingly divergent or wider. The gap between those who follow God and those who don't. And a lot does depend on who you identify with. In many ways, I believe this is a lot of your context. In college, you all start in the same place, relatively, right? You eat the same food, you live in the same dorm, the rel- relatively same area, and you have a choice to choose your own tribe. Or maybe you don't choose a tribe at all. Maybe you might just decide, you know what? I'm better off living life on my own and I'm not going to be a part of anything. Like that's a, that's a big part of uh, us uh, uh, and our culture, this individualistic mindset. And depending on what your answer to the question then of who I will identify with, that will actually set the trajectory in college for many, many years down the road. And 10 years from now, you might discover that you and your roommate's paths are very different depending on who decided to live for God or not. And if you look at Scripture, like what does it mean to follow God? And it's very clearly laid out in Scripture. Be in relation with others who follow God and be on mission for God. In other words, love God and love people. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey. Now, if this is true, then it makes sense that we base our lives on the gospel and commit to those who do the same. Now, I understand it might be rough at times. You might have Christian roommates And um, whether Christian or not, I think living, especially if you're like a sophomore moving out of the dorms and living in an apartment for the first time, that's my daughter. That's what she's going to do this year. She's going to be a rising sophomore. She's going to live with roommates in an apartment for the first time. And I think I tried to warn her it's going to be rough because somebody said, I thought it was funny, someone said that living with your peers in an apartment is like porcupines trying to embrace. Um, It's like a lot of wounds are going to be created there. Um, because, yeah, we're sinful creatures, and we all have our preferences. But, you know, in this kind of situation, if you have a Christian roommate, and they're kind of aligned with God in mission, at least, at least that's where the trajectory is headed, I encourage you not to give up. I think it, the struggle to love each other is well worth the effort. Because you will not understand the richness of fellowship and love if your view towards another person doesn't change from this kind of casual view of 
one another that we have been reared in. The gospel must grow larger and larger in our life as we get older. And a big part of that is embracing those who are on this path. And that means committing to those people who are on this path. And then true fellowship will happen. Now, Lot, going back to Lot, he ends up foregoing a relationship, a godly man in someone like his uncle Abraham. Now, how did that happen? Well, I don't think it was a deliberate choice. It, you know, you find as you read the account of Lot that he was oddly passive. People um, often talk about like themselves in a passive voice. I don't know if you ever catch yourself doing that. Instead of saying, uh, I did this or I, made, I committed that sin, it's, it's like it happened. It happened like as if like, like a bad relationship happened to me as if you were not culpable. Um, and people tend to blame events and situations um, when, in fact, you were very complicit in it and you could have done something. And I think that applies to Lot. He probably said, it happened. Uh, but he was so passive. Like, what, what do you mean? Lot could have owned up to his own desires for comfort, for his desire to live in a place like Sodom. Uh, he probably thought, I'm tired of living this kind of God-centric life. I want to move away from my uncle. Rather than giving voice to those desires, he just said, you know what? If you say that we should part ways, I think I'll go this way. And he never really voiced these things. And so it starts off with a little silence. And then what ends up pulling Lot is his contradictory desires that ended up pulling in the direction away, uh, uh, away from God. And the sign of uh, the life that God is at work in you is often characterized by a purposeful, intentional, like, choice to live in the direction of God. Lot knew God. Well, sort of. He knew at least of God. He was with his uncle Abraham. And the net effect of that is that there was a tension in his heart that never got resolved, which caused him to experience all of life in not a very strong way. So don't live this way. You have a choice. We have agency. You can choose. You can choose which group to belong to. And if they're living for God, you can choose that. We live in an era of hyper-individualism where everything is catered to us and where we need to be our authentic self, right? And as a result, what happens is we just go with the flow and we tend to end up rejecting authorities like Abraham. Don't be like this. Lot was just committed to himself without considering the value of community and covenantal bonds. And I think many people out there, like Lot, overestimate the value of autonomy and then refuse connection and consequences, which I think leads to a life far from the life of blessing that God envisioned. We need to be very careful here. Verse 14 of chapter 14, the previous chapter, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house of them and went, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Lot is now captured, and Abram gets wind of this, and now he's going to take 318 trained men, and he's going to go after them. 
uh, and after those four kings. Now, that's so cool. I mean, can you imagine? Like, this is like the stuff of movies, right? Like, you just, you could build a movie around this. But he does this, and he rescues his nephew, and it's just an incredible event. And then what ends up happening? What ends up happening is um, he starts to feel afraid, which is why God says in chapter 15, verse 1, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, you, your reward shall be very great. Now, why would he be scared? He seems so bold, taking those trained men, fighting against those four kings, but I think it's understandable, right? Like, you're brave at the moment, you take, you, you, you step out in faith in an incredible act of valor, and then after that event occurs, you come back and you go, oh, what have I done? Have you ever had that moment, that sentiment, when you go out on a limb for God, take a step of faith? You know, you became a Christian, your parents are atheists, you imagine that things would be okay, and you go, I became a Christian dad and mom, and then, oh, what have I done? You know, it's that, that's often happens, right? You take you take a step of faith, you go out on a limb, and suddenly you realize you're out on that limb. You're a little bit too far from that trunk, and you start to say, wow, I think I'm crazy to have done what I have done. And then you start to fear. Yeah, re- at the conference that I attended, we were with other churches, and one way to characterize, uh, uh, one way to give a picture of our church was to show that video that a lot of you show, saw earlier in the year, the still crazy after all of these years video. Now, that's a really risky video to show because we were dancing. If you remember the older ones in that video, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. It's okay. Um, But the theme of still crazy after all of these years into your 40s and into your 50s and so on and so forth. And there's in that video, there's these stories, uh, short little snippets from the older ones saying, yeah, like I still like at 50, I'm still playing games like Ming Ming Mong, and I'm still beating the freshmen. Like, it's like that kind of story. And they're saying, it's still crazy after all of these years. And I think it really encouraged the younger people among the, peop- the conference attendees because they're like in their 20s. And I'm sure they've gone out on a limb for God and they realize, like, I'm crazy to do what I'm doing, to live for God in this context on a college campus, a lot of them raising their own financial support. And they're probably thinking, well, I'm crazy. And then they look at us after all of these years and we're still crazy. And we're not only still crazy, we've survived. And not only have we survived, we actually feel joyful doing it. You know, and that must have encouraged them because that's what happens, right? You take a step of faith, it's bold, it's decisive, And then you have regrets because you go, oh my gosh, what have I done? But steps of faith are always risky in that sense, right? You suddenly realize after you've taken that step how vulnerable you are, how unsafe your position is, and you start to doubt and even fear. But I just want to say that's what taking steps of faith for God looks like. And hopefully, as you look at us older ones, those of you, the younger ones out there, you see that we've survived. I hope it will have that same effect on you, that it will encourage you, that following God, although it's not easy, that God has been faithful. And 
we can trust in his words when he says to Abraham, fear not. He says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then what is Abraham being invited into by God? He's saying your reward, whatever reward that is, your steps of faith will ultimately be vindicated. And he's not talking about material blessings here. I think we can understand from this context, we're talking about a reward that's very historical, that we will be a part of God's salvation history, including that special lineage which we see in Matthew chapter 1, that genealogy where it starts with, yeah, and Jesus' genealogy started with Abraham. It's that salvation lineage. And he's saying to all of us, by extension, to a person who takes a step of faith as you let go and as you follow God, as you feel that vulnerability of following Jesus, as you let go of your contingency plans, and then what ends up happening? You start to feel unsafe. You start to feel insecure. God invites you to continue to believe. Fear not. Because your step of faith will lead you to being a part of his salvation, blessing, and work. And in the process, almost as a byproduct, you will end up changing, growing, maturing, and becoming a person who is capable of being such a man and woman of courage and faith. So I want to ask you here, what do you do when you fear? And what do you do when you start to feel that doubt creeping in when you've taken a step of faith? It says here, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And I really like the way that that's phrased there because it's like a very personal connection. The word of God is very personal to Abram. God's word comes to him in a personal way. And I just want to ask you if you've had those moments where the word of God has come to you in a very personal way. The word of the Lord came to you and then you fill in your name there. Have you had such moments, especially when you've experienced fear and doubt that you're living this life, like if this is like a step of faith this like, that you're on, if that's okay? Have you gone to his word that says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you? Or you think about what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless. You will not be remembered, but set your heart on eternity. And those things reset your heart. It reminds yourself that life following God is not crazy. So Abraham has his doubts, but he honestly goes to God and receives his word. And then we read here in verse 2, it says, God says, Oh, Lord, uh, Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So he's thinking this, this guy named Eliezer is going to be my heir. I have no child. He starts to doubt. And I could understand it because his situation seems exactly the same given that God has promised that he would be, like the soaring promise that he will be a father of many nations, and out of his lineage will be the work of God's salvation. And yet, he doesn't see that. What he sees is that he is childless, and he has this dude named Eleazar that's going to be his inheritor. And so, I still, I think this is very relatable, 
because there's a gap between the promise and when the rewards actually get fulfilled. The rewards aren't necessarily immediate. Your situation may be exactly the same after you became a Christian and decided to follow God. You still might have that difficulty at home or that family situation, that financial situation, the addictions that don't go away overnight, the friendships that are not genuine still. My situation seems exactly the same. So there is this disconnect between the promise and the present reality. So we might ask, like, why is it this way? Why am I blank? Why am I still jobless? Why am I still single? Why am I still this immature? And what is God's response to this? God says, look up at the stars. That's how many children you're going to have. And you know what? Is that reassuring? Like, that's his promise from before. He doesn't give any, like, tangible other evidence that you're on the right path. Just look up at the stars, Abram. Remember when I told you to look up at the stars before? Look up, up at the stars again. In other words, he just shares the promise again. And to Abraham's credit, he believes in God. In verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and it counted, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, if you actually follow his story, was not perfect. It's not free from sinning and doubting God, but one thing is he believed in God, and God responds to that and calls that righteous. Now think about that. What an odd thing is it? Isn't it that trust is equated with righteousness? Because I think we think of righteousness as doing good deeds, not lying, not cheating, um, you know, caring for the poor and things like that, but God calls trusting in Him, believing in Him righteous. And if you actually go and uh, l like look up what the word counted it to him as righteousness means, counts it, it's like he considers it adequate. In other words, I know you're a sinner, I know all your faults, but I will consider your belief in my promise as righteous. Like, he just declares that. What an amazing thing that is, that we get to repair our relationship with God, even through our doubts and failures, just by believing in His promise again. And when we trust in God, no matter the kinds of sins and failures you've experienced so far, the kinds of disappointments in yourself because of your sin, God credits that belief in God's promise as righteousness. To believe even when things are not going well when all your senses are telling you not to believe, when your emotions are, when you're feeling depleted and it's informing you to abandon this whole God thing and you don't actually feel righteous, but you trust that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and you, rep you repent and trust that God made you a new creation. So 2,000 years later, He's... Uh, I mean, his son, Jesus, on the cross, he says, when we trust all of that, like our failures, our sins, and, he, and we believe in what Jesus has done, then he credits our faith as righteousness. He formally declares that we are right with God. So it's important that we don't misconstrue the promises, not like immediately being fulfilled as a sign that God doesn't care or that God's not there. Because God doesn't just want to snap his fingers and say, there you go, Abraham, 
there are all your sons and daughters. Voila, boom, you know, they're all mature and ready and ready to serve. And no, it's because he wants to develop that trust with us. So if God just snapped his fingers and did that, well, that would have been just a good, nice thing, a miraculous thing that's done to Abraham. But God wants a relationship of trust where God, where Abraham trusts in God's promises. And this is how it is. This is how we cultivate relationships in the human sphere as well. Like to my wife, I, how do we cultivate this relationship? I say, you trust me. And uh, on our wedding day, I said, I make this a vow that I will be with you till death do us apart. And even as I said that, like, I don't have any other evidence to show that I'm going to be there for her. It's just my words. And she trusted my words. And whenever there's doubt, without tangible assurance, I just reiterate my promise. I will be there for you. And then on her end, to trust in my words. That's how relationships of trust are formed, to take our words seriously. And so... God responds to Abraham with this reiteration of this promise and an object lesson. Man, look at the skies. And it must have been amazing. Looking up at the skies. Imagine back then without city lights to bleed into the night sky. Look toward heaven and the number of stars. So shall your offspring be. And like this is all God can do. He just continues to make promises. And I think... Um, we need to trust, learn to trust in his words. And then I think what will end up happening is this kind of intimate relationship with God. And, you know, whenever, I think how this works is whatever it is that you, you're struggling through and you don't really believe in God's promise, like if you've sinned a lot, you have a lot of baggage from your past and go back to his word and says you're forgiven, if you... And you have to really trust in that again. Um, print it out. Print out those verses and remind yourself of it if you feel very insecure. Um, yeah, like here's a couple verses, like Isaiah 43. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. If you're feeling very weak, and you failed again, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How do I know for sure that God's word is true? Well, we have good reason to believe it. It's not blind faith. We have good reason to believe it because we have the testimony of Scripture. We have personal testimonies of people who have lived out their faith, who are older. And God is gracious. Even in the midst of our doubt, he gives us object lessons. And he says, look at the sky. Look at the, your brother. He didn't die. <laughs> look at the older ones. You're not crazy. He will address your specific needs. And then verse 17 says a very interesting rest of the passage. When we read this, it may seem odd to us back then because when the, in the Middle East, when people wanted to show that they are serious about a promise, they went through this ceremony where there's these cut animals and then you walk through the blood of these two animals cut in half. And so in verse 17, we read, when the sun had gotten down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot, pot and a flaming torch passed between those cut animals. And what is the meaning of this? God is... Usually there's two people 
like in a contract, you have two people that signed that contract. In this case, it's the same. Two people are supposed to sign that contract, and signing the contract in the Middle East is to walk through these cut animal pieces because it's very visual. Because if you break that, what that picture is showing is that you're going to pay for it with your blood. Like it's like that's how serious this covenant and this commitment is. And so, God, what 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 do we see here? It's a, a smoking fire pot, which is and a flaming torch. Fire and smoke usually. You will find out in Exodus that that is a description of God. Like you see that in Mount Sinai, you see that uh, in the Israelites' wanderings in the desert. So in other words, God is walking through alone, not with Abraham. As if to say, Abraham, I'm going to walk through for both of us. It's not a partnership, in other words, when it comes to our relationship with God because the Christian faith and our ability to be saved is not a cooperative effort in that regard. It, God comes through and He knows that we're going to fail. He knows that we're sinners. But He decides, I will not cut you off. May I be cut off instead than have you cut off. And so centuries later, in a similar event of darkness on Good Friday, we see uh, the fulfillment of this ceremony where mankind breaks the covenant again and again and again and again. And who will stand in place of the blood but Jesus on the cross for us? The payment for breaking of the covenant is Jesus himself. This is what God is saying to us is, I will be this faithful to you. My promises are valid. You can trust in my words because I'm willing to give my life for you. The cost of your sin has been paid for. We just need to trust in his promise. And then it will be credited to us as righteousness. While we were still sinners, it said in Romans 5, Christ died for us. And as we trust, we will be saved, and He can lead our life. In the end, we see Abraham's continual trust in God's words, allowing him to become a certain sort of person. Lot was becoming a certain kind of person. We're always becoming a certain kind of person based on our everyday choices and investment. The small and large deposits into the kind of person that we're becoming. And Lot and Abraham became vastly different at the end of their lives because one continued to trust in God's words and His promises, and the other decided to passively go the way of his desires. And this serves as a picture for us of what like, these divergent paths might end up for us if we choose one direction or other. Faith is the fruit that emerges from the consistent direction of decisions to trust God against the voice of practicality. And I don't think you could convince Lot at the peak of his powers where his flocks were flourishing that the direction of separating from Abraham would have ended up as it did. So the Bible gives us a story of two men who started in the same place but ended up in vastly different places. And I just would like to urge you 
you know, wherever you are in your Christian journey, start with steps to trust in His words. And then cling to those who walk with God along the way. And as you do so, I, I think we have the testimony of Scripture that God will be faithful, that He cares for you, He knows how to lead your life, and then our trust in Him will be credited to us as righteousness. So uh, let's uh, end by sharing um, from today's text. Um, and you have the passage in front of you, um, and maybe you could just point to a verse that said, you know what, I'm going to, uh, that, that point, that verse, I'm going to hold on to that. So I'll give you a couple minutes before we uh, have our final song and close our service. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are there in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, that you say, fear not, I am with you. I pray that we can trust in your words, your promise to believe that what you have done for us is true, that we are forgiven, that your ways are higher and better than our ways. Help us, Lord, in our moments when we are conflicted to go back to your word and trust in you. And Lord, I pray for the younger ones here. May they come to thoughtful decisions about who they will align with as they live out their lives. May the choice May they choose carefully and do so with your will in mind. Help all of us to be clear that life in the church, following you along with others, is how you have designed life to be. And may we commit to it decisively that our life can be a life of faith like Abraham, in greater intimacy with you and with the reward of your heavenly blessings on the horizon. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and kindness to us. In Jesus' name I pray.